Welcome to the Waybox Podcast. We'll be chatting to some of the most influential people in the UK health and fitness industry to bring you their story and their key messages. So, whether you're on the treadmill, commuting to work, or simply sitting at home, we hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Waybox Podcast. I'm Tally Wright and I'm here with Ben, one of the founders of Waybox. Hello. And we are here today to dig a little bit deeper into some of your favourite influences in the health and fitness industry. Waybox is all about convenience, so we're hoping this podcast is a convenient way of getting to know the people you love a little bit better. So welcome, Rupi Orjula. Hello. You are a GP, Uh a blogger, a YouTuber, a home chef, and now an author. I know, it's weird, that last one, isn't it? But you can put it on like, I'm sure you've got many letters after your name with all your degrees and (laughs) and all that sort, but now author's probably the most legit one of all. Yeah, well, the most legit, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Those degrees are all fake. Yeah, the other degrees, yeah, Yeah. nine years, nah. No, I I, I probably am going to put author, but you know what, I don't, I'm scared of putting it out there before the book's out. Not that I, not that I don't think the book's going to come out on the 28th of December, it's just quite strange to put it on yeah I, I don't know i find the whole process very overwhelming did uh, a lot of work go into it i mean it, must yeah. it takes a lot of time to do all the recipes and all the content but yeah, in terms it, of everything else that people don't see how long did that all take oh it, you know what I, I crammed it in um to three months and a lot of people are like wow you did that in three months because it's a hundred recipes the first bit my initial draft was like thirty-five thousand words which is essentially wow. like a thesis yeah and there's over 200 academic references in the back as well that was, I bet that down was fun from. that was yeah <laughs> that was fun that i'm lucky in that the last six seven years when i've been immersing myself in the literature and everything else i've been compiling all this research there so i could literally just slot into different folders on my computer and take the research, go through the papers again and say, okay, this is relevant to what I'm trying to say here. So I'm lucky in that respect. But yeah, it was like 16 hour days at my desk, recipe creating, going to supermarkets, figuring out how to make food accessible and recipes mm. that people actually make as well. So it, were, it was definitely a and lot it, of work. <laughs> you did a lot of the work leading up to that or had you been approached by someone to do the book and then you had to go away and get all the content etc yeah yeah so it was really strange the whole process actually because I've always been approached so when I got back from Australia I got approached by my literary agent um, and my my representation as well and they were like we see this as a book and back then I had about 5,000 followers I don't know what you guys are talking Mm. about you know I can't Mm. write a book I'm just a GP Um, and they said no no you should really do it so I, I sat down with them after a few months of dilly dally we went through a proposal um, and we were going to send it out to nine different publishers and then my my publisher who I'm with at the moment they actually approached me and my literary agent in advance and, and said we want to see the proposal before anyone else yeah and they looked at the proposal they loved it they wanted to have a meeting again before approaching anyone else so we went and we had a really really good meeting everyone was so so on board with the message they completely got it and I was really happy to go with them and, and under the direction of my, my agent. And we just went with them and then just started working on the book. But like, just to clarify, the the, the three months when I actually wrote the first draft, yep. that was probably the easiest bit of this whole really? process. The book has been rewritten again and again yeah. over the last year, pretty much. Really? Is that wow. because yeah. a lot of what you do is very science-based and evidence-based and that constantly changes and there's constantly new studies coming out. And yeah, so I suppose yeah. that's impacted it in some way? That may have impacted it to some degree, mm. but uh, more because I'm quite clear on my principles of healthy eating, 
the science of the last nine months hasn't changed significantly to warrant like rewriting mm. but from that perspective but it was more like the way i've written things you know how sciencey i've made it uh do people understand the message i'm trying mm. to convey loads of things had to be cut out because it just wasn't too, enough space yeah. i mean i could have gone on for an, like well, another book, book two, to be book honest three. <laughs> don't worry yeah. it's all coming how, yeah. how did you learn to cook because i've watched your instagram stories and looked at your recipes yeah. and obviously seen like bits of the book from the uh, sort of the thumbnail on amazon yeah and i just don't know people it like it was especially as busy you mu- as you must be <laughs> yeah, yeah. how the hell do you learn to cook it's actually something to for, for young mothers out there uh, and young parents in general to instill in their kids very early on so my mum is probably my biggest culinary influence mm. throughout my childhood we had uh, not just indian food but she'd be making american food italian she'd be experimenting we always had food programs were you brought up in London? Yeah, I was brought up in London, oh, nice. yeah. I was in uh, Essex. Uh... <laughs> the accent comes out every now and then. Yeah, you got yeah. some local Essex cuisine up your sleeve. <laughs> yeah. On a Scampi chips. Yeah, literally, <laughs> on a night out. <laughs> Sorry, anyone from Essex. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, yeah, so the, she would always make, you know, different cuisines and that mm. kind of stuff. And then when I got into medical school, I remember a couple of months before I was going, she was like, well, you need to you need to know how to cook because, you know, you, you, don't, you, you just have my cooking, so I'm not going to be there. So I was like, all right. Um, so the first meal she cooked me, and this is actually in the book, was lemongrass Thai curry. Um, what a meal. <laughs> I know, right? And I remember thinking, oh, yeah, I love this meal. It's like one of my favorites. And she taught me how to make it with no ingredients spared. Thai basil, galangal, the um, soy, the coconut milk, the lemongrass, like everything. Mm. But the way she taught me was just so simple. It was just, okay, now you put in this, and then you put the oil, and then you do, you know. And then we had this wonderful curry that was left to simmer with a bit of fragrant rice. And that was it. And it was so simple. I remember vividly that day, like I was in the kitchen, my sister who was 12 at the time, she was sat at the, at the kitchen bar and we were just going through it and it just made so much sense. Yeah. And so when I went to university, I started making this whilst my other mates were like making beans on toast. Yeah. And everyone thought I was this amazing chef, and but so you, I only had a repertoire of like three <laughs> recipes. You probably ended up, ended up cooking for everyone. I ended up cooking yeah. that for a lot of people yeah. and teaching Mommy other people. Her. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And that kind of got me on my trajectory of like recipe creating doing other um uh, cuisines and i had this reputation of being this good chef so i had to keep it up keep it up (laughs) so that leads us on very nicely because i really want to get to know more about you and your childhood so obviously your mum's a really good cook but Mm. who were your other influences growing up and kind of how did that shape you into wanting to go to medical school that's a really interesting question actually Uh, like culinary influences i've had many so Mm. Like I said, we used to watch food programs all the time. So Jamie Oliver was always on. Rick Stein's one of my biggest um, influences. Uh, Nigel Slater, Nigella, obviously. Like the real big hitters that I kind of grew up alongside with and who would influence my mum. And then we also had like old cookbooks like um, Mary Berry's uh, Fast Cakes. Uh, we had. Did you have Adelia Smith? We had Adelia. We had a Madhu Jaffrey. Yeah, yeah. We had them all on the counter. And my mum would use them and I'd, I'd be reading them, like, you know, just hanging out in the kitchen. I mean, the kitchen's like the central unit yeah. of most houses. In particular, this was like, this is where we all hung out, basically. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that was definitely like, those were my culinary influences. My dad, he started his business uh, just, I think, the year after I was born. And he and my mum both worked in the business like, 100% the, the whole time I remember I had nannies growing up because they would they would be very busy mm. my dad was working like seven days a week so I, I got work ethic from him 
my education was like super important to my my parents yeah. so you know that typical sort of indian mentality of like education first everything else yeah. second and i think i'm really grateful for that even though it's quite restrictive as a kid like mm. i wouldn't i wouldn't be um out at night or like you know i wouldn't be going to the pubs and stuff as a 15 year old trying to get in and <laughs> yeah. stuff like that. that wasn't like my, my You're studying upbringing. pretty much studying but I, I actually really enjoyed studying as well so You're I was really like, very good at it I'm not, so <laughs> you, working you, must, well for you must have to enjoy studying as well yeah, to, to do you, medicine because it's such a long old slog it's not something you can yeah. grind out like like I did with English or something like yeah, that yeah yeah definitely it's a it's a kind of studying that I think isn't necessarily reflective of intelligence obviously you need to have some awareness and everything mm. else but you know this kind of regurgitation of information constantly looking through books and that kind of stuff i didn't learn how to um, really apply learning until i was in clinics and, yeah. and doing a, a lot more medicine and even now like you know this hasn't stopped it's con- continually evolving so yeah so that was like you know my upbringing and, and when i was a teenager and stuff um but i i never really thought about medicine because my my parents actually wanted me to go into business really? yeah so when i actually turned around and said i want to do medicine they weren't 100 percent supportive initially which is very unusual yeah. for you think most family, parents right? would be yeah. jumping yeah. for joy yeah. Yeah. my yeah. son is going to be a hero yeah no no it was like they knew it was long hours they knew it yeah. wasn't paid well they knew that you know the tradi- I mean they had lots of doctor friends so they obviously supported it but I, I think my earliest experiences when my mum got ill were, were when like I thought about medicine mm. quite um, quite literally and so uh, I've, I've written about this in the book a little bit but um, my mum when I was about 11 or 12 used to suffer from anaphylaxis episode so anaphylaxis is where it's like the most severe form of allergy yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. where your blood pressure drops uh, you swell you, you get a swelling of your, your airways it's potentially fatal and so she would be having these episodes and there wasn't a clear trigger associated so because usually it's like nuts or something yeah. some it? people so have nuts specific, some people have yeah. yeah specific allergens that can can cause this and food shellfish mm-hmm. that kind of stuff and she went to see like some of the best immunologists in the country and uh, obviously her gp was completely on board she had all the different sorts of investigations and nothing revealed the cause for her so the what we do in medicine i mean iatrogenic uh, anaphylaxis is what they called it um, so basically, you know, we don't know, but you need to take these medications. You always need to be on EpiPen, all this kind of stuff. Mm. And that, that had a range of side effects for her. So she wasn't really, uh, um, you know, satisfied with that answer. And as a lawyer, she trained as a, um, you know, she was in the banking industry, investment banking, just loads of different things. Mm. She applied her sort of analytical approach to finding out the root cause of why this is happening. And obviously her Indian background and uh, her basis in Ayurveda and naturopathy, she was quite naturopathic orientated. She just went step by step and overhauled her lifestyle. Small changes at the start, but massive, massive effect. So it was along the lines of uh, taking out potential allergens out of her food and introducing like healthy alternatives. So I remember for a whole year, I remember all she used to eat was just spinach and whole grain rice. And oh, really? yeah, yeah. So her diet was actually quite restrictive. She was doing this on her own. Yeah. But then she'd, she'd do things like um, making sure she gets sleep on time, meditation, certain types of exercise, a mindset and a holistic attitude to her life really took over. Mm. And she was doing this simultaneously whilst raising me and my sister, running her businesses. So it's r- rubbing off on you. You're surrounded by it daily. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, she was like a massive, massive influence, I think. And when she came off medications, and w- since then she hasn't had to use wow. um, an, a, a, like an EpiPen again, which is the adrenaline shot. That was really my introduction into the power of food as medicine mm. and the power of lifestyle medicine as well. I think it's fascinating. You meet a lot of doctors and medics and people who work in that world, and mm. so much of it seems to stem from having a close loved one yeah. um, get sick and Absolutely. that is often the kind of impetus to like right I need to solve this problem and I'm yeah. going to find out how yeah. so I think that's really fascinating I had no idea that your mum had gone through all that I think we should get her on the podcast <laughs> yeah, well, so this is yeah. great Sorry, last, yeah. week, last time we said we should get Alice's mum on the podcast <laughs> I know <laughs> so we need to do like a mini series <laughs> yeah. yeah and then the mums, <laughs> the mums, of, mums of Instagram like, yeah yeah my mum's very shy like that she, she hates it whenever I mention her so, yeah. well I think she's I'm sure she's also very proud yeah. very proud so that's really interesting so you kind of got to that point, your mum has going through all this kind of alternative uh, mm. therapy, so to speak. Yeah, alongside conventional. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. I'm sure it's con- extremely well thought out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so what what age did you go to medical school? Uh, so I went, uh, I, I did my A-levels, two A's and a, two A's? No, three A's and a B. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then, uh, yeah, so I, I think I was... 17 when I got my results, but 18 when I went to medical school because I'm a so junior young. Baby. Yeah, where did, yeah. Where did very you go? young. Uh, I got into Imperial okay, Medical cool. School. Yeah, but the process of getting to medical school was was terrible. So I flunked all my. Not a lot of people know this. I flunked all my medical school interviews initially. So uh, usually you have interviews around like December, January mm. time. Um, and I remember I went to. I applied to Oxford, UCL. Kings and Imperial, so so the easy ones, the easy ones, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the easy ones. And uh, I remember I went to my Kings interview. I, I got asked this question, and I just it just blanked. Yeah, I completely flunked that interview. I couldn't believe it. I really wanted to go to Kings, and I remember when I got the rejection letter, I was just bawling my eyes out. I was seventeen years old. I'm never going to get medical school. I can't believe this. My life's over. Uh, and then UCL didn't give me an interview. I flunked my Oxford interview. So Imperial was my last chance saloon. Yeah, Yeah. and I remember I went to the interview process in March and I was sat, just me, a 17-year-old, in front of five people. Two were consultants, one was the dean, there was a medical student there as well. Um, It was really intense, but I, I, I kind of like... I got into this zone where I was like, well, this is the last chance to I'm just going to give it my best. If I, I've already come up with a plan B if mm-hmm. I don't get to medical school. So Which I was, was? quite like, oh, just take a year out. Yeah. And, um, or go for again. clearing or do it all again. Yeah. And do, yeah, do something different. Yeah. So I was really relaxed when I went in there and that really helped. And I got uh, an acceptance letter like in a week and a half, two weeks later. I couldn't believe it. So that was, that was great. But yeah, when I went to medical school, it was very, very strange because you're, you, when you're when you're really fighting in your um uh, in your prime in your secondary school, you're you're kind of like the top ten percent of yes. your year, right? You're when the you're big trying fish to go, in a small pot. Exactly, yeah. yeah. When you go to medical school, everyone is smart, yes. and I, I remember still, I'm pretty sure I was bottom quartile of my medical school group. There's a lot of really smart people who went yeah. to medical school, and then yeah. Imperial attracts that certain academia yeah. as well. So that was quite intimidating. And I remember I flunked my my first um, uh, exams at the end of year one. In Imperial, yeah, I had to resit them in the summer, so that ruined my summer holidays. I've never flunked an exam since then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you but, soon learn. Yeah, yeah, it was hard. It was really hard. I, because I, that's the other thing as well. I suppose coming from my Indian background, 
where I never really used to go out that much. And then finally having all this freedom Chocolate and exposed, yeah, yeah we went out week. drinking, we went to <laughs> yeah. the pubs, we went to all like the medical school events. It was great fun. I've never regretted it. Have but, to say, because I think of you as a very social person, just from what <laughs> you post on social media and what I've seen of you, you're always out for drinks with friends. Mm. You're always at the coolest cocktail bars. And I, I, I've, <laughs> you got, have I've, I've got quite a few friends at Doxon. I don't want to do the uh, medical industry a disservice, but yeah, half yeah. of them are very, very committed to the job. And not saying the other half are. <laughs> Yeah. The other half, like, really party as well. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's this medical school culture that yeah. I was introduced to on week one. Um, there was the fresher event, and it was my first taste of snake bite. Oh, <laughs> no. We were, we were got to do games. People were getting up on stage. People were just, like, getting naked. And I was like, where am I? This is a zoo. And that was my life for, like, you know, good four or five years. And yeah, it was it, it was a strange experience, and I think that first year really got me to realise that I have to balance work and play. Mm. And without having a schedule of like, I remember doing homework, and you know, your teachers will always be on you at, at secondary school because they wanted you to go to medical school, they wanted you to get the A's. And in university, it's not like that. It's like here's the work, you choose to do it. If you don't do it, you'll probably fail. But if you fail, then you're out, and that's it. And it was that that I had to figure out um, coming from school, which I eventually did. <laughs> how, long, how long did you study for? In the uh, so six years total, yep. um, because I did a BSc in uh, management during my medical degree, which I, I think was probably one of the best years ever in med school. Oh, really? <laughs> it was quite, uh, yeah, it's quite ironic given that there was no medicine that year. <laughs> uh, I went to, it was called Tanaka Business School at the time, but now it's called Imperial Business School. It's kind of like an MBA, but condensed into one year. So it's really right. intense. We had to come up with a project. We did entrepreneurship. We did marketing, accounting. We did, um, there was a little emphasis on, on health management as well. And mm. um, we did like health economics. So I learned a lot about the structure of the NHS, how other healthcare systems work. And that has permeated throughout my whole clinical yeah. career. Every time I'm in a ward or in GP surgery, I'm like, this A, first of all, is very, very inefficient, the NHS. Uh, but B, how do we look for solutions? Like when, when a lot of junior doctors complain about the system, I, I agree, I totally get it. But I think we need to change our mindset from complaints to solutions focused. Yes. And that is where my headspace is at the moment. Like how do we save the NHS, but how do we make it more efficient and accessible and effective? And how do you think we do that? I mean, I know we're opening up a political can of worms. Here. Yeah. It's really yeah. interesting because it's such a hot topic and yeah. the whole Jeremy Hunt issue. And Absolutely, yeah. have all got friends that have, are working in NHS that are similar age sort of mm. thing. So totally, yeah. What's, what do you suggest? I think that... We we can't rely on a top-down approach to employ policies that will revolutionise the NHS because A, that they're not going to be born out from the front line and B, um, there are probably other political targets and, and uh, influences that are going to be affecting that, right? So I'm all up for the bottom-up approach. So uh, investing in innovation, investing in implementation of innovation from the front line, mm. uh, whether that be digital products and services, whether it be, you know, the ward matron who understands what the patient flow is like and where we need to invest more money. And certainly we need to maintain our focus on the community because right now I think we think too much about hospitals and primary care services, which are amazing and obviously that's that's the biggest driver for the nhs in terms of money but our community and the the ill health and accessibility of healthcare in the community is what 
is driving this public health crisis. It's the fuel for diabetes, cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure. These are the most expensive yeah. uh, elements of the NHS. So that's why I'm food focused. Because... Yeah, and imagine the platform that sort of Instagram or other social media channels have given you has allowed you to literally go direct to consumer almost with that message and why you know people like yourself are doing so well at getting that message out there. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, like uh, I'm really grateful and humbled that I have a platform now that I can speak about this kind of stuff. Mm. And I always bring the evidence base to it because when you look at the evidence base for uh, those who have more fruits and vegetables on a weekly basis, really simple stuff. Those who get more sleep, those who exercise or improve their cardiorespiratory fitness, mm. they have massive effects on health outcomes. Much, much bigger than any pill that I can prescribe. Much bigger than any prescription bill. This is where we need to be investing our time and energy, giving people access to health coaches that motivate people, getting people access to food that's actually going to be medicinal for them as well and actually have an impact wider than just diabetes and cardiovascular disease. Yeah. We're talking about mental health, we're talking about dementia, we're talking about everything that you can think of in the healthcare space. So. I think it's incredible the work you do yeah. and other people in the same industry as you in terms of in medicine and trying to get that message out there to a more of a mainstream audience. I think life lifestyle medicine is hopefully where it's going and that is going to be the big trend I think so going forward because I really hope we need it as a country like I firmly believe it could just help so many people without them even realizing it most people don't realize until you've had a week of eating well sleeping well just how good you can actually feel yes. absolutely yeah yeah so when did you become a lot more passionate about the lifestyle medicine approach was that after starting as a junior doctor or was that something you found during medical school or when did that really kind of hit you as this is what we need to be talking about in the NHS in the public domain in general sure um, so it actually uh, took me getting ill myself uh, until I actually you know looked into lifestyle medicine looked into food and, and medicine mm. again so my mum was kind of like the starting point and that's what got me into medical school yeah medical school I kind of forgot why I went to medical school in the first place because you're snake taught... bite makes you forget <laughs> I mean snake bite does make you forget yeah you're right it might have been that um, but you're taught very much a traditional way of looking at medicine and you know imperial college it's great research uh, but certainly the focus is on um, uh, precision medicine therapeutic models you're taught a very algorithmic way mm. of, of treat of, of doing medicine I mean there's great communication skills and it's an awesome education to have great foundation but there wasn't an emphasis on lifestyle and nutrition I didn't realize how important that was until I got ill myself so um, and this is something that I talk about in the book as well after like three, four months in working at Basildon Hospital, which is very, very stressful hospital to work roots. as a junior. Yeah, back to the roots <laughs> in Essex. Uh, I remember it was like 12 days in to a long stretch. Um, I was sleep deprived. It was a Sunday, winding down for the last couple of hours of a shift. Um, and I was with my red straw. I started getting palpitations. And I remember thinking, oh, it's probably something like I've, I've had uh, a coffee today or I haven't mm. drunk enough water or something like that. And just kept on getting on and like faster and faster and faster. And then, and then I spoke to my red straw, my boss, and I was like, do you mind feeling my pulse? Because I'm going really fast, I think. And I thought I was going to get slapped down. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Your pulse is fine. Let's just go and see the next patient. Um but no, she like put me on an ECG straight away. <laughs> wow. And it was like barn door, That's something mad. called atrial fibrillation, which is where your heart beats very, very fast and irregularly as well. I was going about 180 beats per minute. 
up to 210, I think, at the time. That's like sprinting on a treadmill, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's probably faster than that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was, and you're just lying there. I'm just lying there, yeah, oh, yeah. Wow. And, it, and it's very, it's a very weird experience. It's uh, It kind of makes you feel sort of like out of body. I didn't have any chest pain. Uh, I wasn't short of breath, but I felt like I was going to faint. Mm. And then it will like build up and then go down. And build. It was just very, very strange sensation. I remember it vividly, actually. Uh, I remember I stripped of my clothes. I had my bleep taken off me. I was in my hospital gown. I was hooked up to a cardio monitor. And I was next to some patients that I had been treating <laughs> as well. It was really strange. I was admitted. I didn't have to have the shock. So the sh- we give shocks when someone is unstable. Mm, and to it, regulate you know, the heartbeat. To, yeah, to essentially mm. reset it, I suppose, is what, how we say it. And I thought this was going to be a one-off episode. I was discharged the next day. My heartbeat returned to normal. I was given some medications. But then the these episodes started happening two, three times a week. Wow. And it would be like, you know, anywhere between three and 12 hours at a time. So I went down and I refused to give up being a junior doctor. I didn't want to like, you know, start taking time off or anything like that. So I had all the investigations. I went to see some of the best cardiologists in the country. I got multiple different opinions and I was offered something called an ablation, which is where they put a wire into the heart and then they burn around uh, a small section of the heart to try and stop these excitable cells uh, misfiring and causing the arrhythmia. Mm. So atrial fibrillation, we don't really know too much about. There are some clear triggers of which none apply to me. So sometimes it's coffee, sometimes it's alcohol, uh, sometimes it's um, this certain medications and uh, usually it's something that happens in older age it's very unusual for like a young person who's otherwise fit no other medical problems no family history it was yeah it was very strange so i was i was offered this ablation and I was going to go for it. I had to start taking warfarin to thin my blood um, so I could have the procedure. And it was offered to me as a curative procedure. And everyone was like, yeah, you should definitely have it. All my colleagues were like, yeah, you should definitely have it. I looked into it and I was like, yeah, I'll probably have it. What did I, mum say? Mom, <laughs> That's what I'm literally waiting yeah, for. Yeah. Mum was like, no, <laughs> you can't have it. So it was just, Spinach and rice have it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she was like, you know, I think this is stress related. I think um, you need to focus on your lifestyle. You need to focus on, you know, all these other things. And I was like, Mum, this isn't like, and this isn't like your issue. This mm. is my issue. This is my life. I've done all the research. I'm a doctor. I was speaking to like some of the world's best experts. Yeah, on it. I'm qualified. Yeah, I'm qualified. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And she's got no medical qualifications though. So anyway, to appease her, I spoke to my cardiologist about it, and they said, "Look, you can take some medications when you have these episodes to abort them, but you will need this ablation at some point. If you leave it too long, then it could get worse before it gets better. Yeah, you know, and it make it more difficult." So, okay, with that in mind, I gave myself six to 12 months and I just went from scratch. So in the mornings, I'd be having things like cereal, typical student lifestyle, mm. whatever. And that went How out. old were you at this point, by the I way? I was 24. Wow. 24, yeah, yeah. So just fresh You're out of med school. You're such a baby doctor. Yeah. I was a baby doctor. Yeah, really, baby really, doctor. Really <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it was it was great. I loved being a junior doctor. It was mm. awesome. It was kind of like being at medical school again because we used to live on site mm. at Basildon. There was 40 of us uh, just off the site of the hospital. We'd always be really supportive of each other. We'd see each other all day, you know, hang out in the mess. We'd have like these Thursday nights at Basildon, uh, Bas Vegas. Have you heard of Bas Vegas? <laughs> yeah, it was like a club and like a bar and stuff. And yeah, oh. we always have mess nights. It was great. We'd hang out with the nurses. Anyway, <laughs> we digress. That's another story. Yeah, yeah. That's another story. Yeah. Um, so yeah, then I, I focused on getting more dark leafy vegetables in and optimizing my omega-3 levels and uh, having uh, 
like really good quality sleep whenever I could when I wasn't on nights and uh, I even started doing meditation I, I started doing different sorts of exercises I was already exercising but I, I paid more a bit more attention to cardiovascular uh, mm. exercises and that kind of stuff and over a year my episodes reduced from like two to three per week to zero and yeah. it was kind of like a massive yeah, yeah. wake-up call and I remember going back to my cardiologist and thinking and saying to him look I haven't got these episodes anymore. What, what do you think is going on? And he was like, oh, you know, you can go through a period of quiescence, so where they, they stop, but then they'll start again. So th- I had this constant fear of like, when are they going to come back? When are they going to come back? And But I maintained on my like healthy lifestyle. Now, yep. I say healthy lifestyle in quotation marks because at the end of the day, it's just lifestyle. It's yeah. how I live my life yeah, now. Yeah. It's, you know, I enjoy getting really good sleep. I enjoy going uh, for a workout. I enjoy and, and uh, creating recipes that are delicious mm. and culturally relevant and accessible to people. And no, no, like, you know, addition of particular powders or superfoods or supplements or anything like that. Mm. It's just good, wholesome cooking. Mm. That's why I became a big advocate of this. And I started, when I started general practice training in Brighton, uh, this is a couple of years later, I always used to speak candidly with my patients about it, like, you know, talk to my diabetic patient about, um, you know, oats or soluble fibres or, um, you know, different sorts of colourful fruits and vegetables and the evidence base behind that and why that might improve their blood sugars. And, you know, I'd always have these conversations. So I got known as the doctor that would talk to the patients about food and I was always running late. <laughs> that, that's actually when I had the idea of the doctor's kitchen. Yeah. So it was actually six, seven years ago, like a good while ago. And have you had like, any episodes since? Uh, I've had a couple, but probably no more than like three or four. Uh, And I can I can exactly figure out why those happen as well. One was when I was uh, I think I was in Australia and it was on a night shift after a night shift. I'd already had like two or three hours sleep. I went back and it was like stressful as hell. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And then I remember I was chatting to my consultant and I was like, yeah, I think I'm an AF. Do you mind if I get an ECG? (laughs) We looked at the ECG. And he was like, oh my God, yes, you're, yeah. you're like the sickest patient in the department. <laughs> uh, but I carried on working. <laughs> oh dear. I think that's really yeah. interesting also to raise a point about stress, especially in our society at the moment. Um, and to pick your brain as a doctor, I think that is a huge health factor at the moment for so many people. I know myself as well. Do you believe that that is something that by changing your lifestyle, by just eating well, going back to basics, eating well, exercising regularly that we could manage a whole lot better and sleep as well I certainly think lifestyle has a role in um, mental health and there's a lot of evidence behind that I think when we when we deal with mental health when, when I deal with mental health with a patient it's really important to um, examine them holistically so mm. looking at every aspect of their life that could be impacting as to why they, this particular person in front of me has a mental health issue um, whether it be low mood whether it be anxiety whether it be schizophrenia whether it be you know lots of different issues but I, I think where appropriate I have a conversation about the impact of food um, with, with patients mm. but you know th- this, with something as complicated as uh, mental health and psychiatry it's never a, a quick fix and it's yeah. never going to be one thing that would like you know if we just get this right if we optimize your omega-3 levels you're going to feel great you know this could be stemming from psychological issues from from childhood it could be you know uh, a history of uh, bullying it could be um, uh, yes it could be poor sleep that's impacting it mm. or you're, you're getting yourself in a vicious cycle and you know one conversation from the next depending on that patient is going to be different you know I'm not going to start talking about flax seeds or cerebral fibres with someone who doesn't know where they're going to be sleeping in the next two or three weeks Yeah. compared to um, someone else who's 
uh, a mum of two and she's really into wellness you know, i'm going to be talking to her in a completely different light so it's yeah so it's really hard to give like a one fixed rule but i think for for across the board nutrition and lifestyle has a role in every condition that i see mm. yeah i think that's i think it's really exciting that we can get that message out there and hopefully kind of help people um on a just like a first level basis like before they even like you said trying to get those people to kind of f- fix the problem in the kitchen at home rather than yeah. going to their doctor straight away and seeing a you know how can you know how can i assess my lifestyle right now like did i get enough sleep the last week probably not like- totally yeah and i think you know there's some really exciting things that are going on uh, in medical education so yesterday i was at bristol medical school and mm. we did a talk to i saw your instagram story. yeah <laughs> we did talk to over 250 medical students right year three these guys have just gone into clinical medicine so it's where you get access to hospitals and you start shadowing and you, you do G- gp clinics and shadowing gps and that kind of stuff and we had a whole day talking about the impact of food uh, on every condition imaginable the impact of exercise the impact of motivational interviewing we showed them clips of um, uh, things like food inc and and like different documentaries mm. that are out there so we had a good discussion about the politics of food you know this we're really at a turning point in terms of medical education and educating and equipping the modern doctor to have a lifestyle medicine conversation so this is this is going to be the norm in the next five to ten years which is so exciting it's really exciting and i mm. think that's where we we're going to see like a real pivot in the way we treat patients and uh how effective our, our uh, treatments are as well because there's definitely a role for pharmacotherapy and multiple different therapies but it's just giving people access to them and educating the providers of of uh medicine to to have those conversations as well as well as the patients mm. themselves i i really envisage sorry for more talking no, 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 i really envisage the future of of, of medicine and, and healthcare where patients don't go to the doctors as often as they are right yeah. now and they're empowered and they, they have um products and services available to them to uh, treat them in their own homes uh, but also educate them as well as to how to do this how to mm. prevent it how to manage it as well and the book must cover a lot of that then have you got a lot of writ- written um, word about how the people can help themselves alongside the recipes I think uh, the book is really what I describe as a culinary journey through food and medicine and why food is medicinal so I talk about like the impact of the microbiome the impact of food on uh, epigenetics and ge- your genetic makeup I talk about the impact of largely plant-based diets and that kind of stuff um, so it's really hard to condense everything into things that people can use for their own conditions and that kind of stuff but once we get the healthy principles the principles of healthy living is what i describe them as a lot of things can happen like i I said you know i had my own health issues it might not be related to that it might be some other stuff but certainly it's a really good starting point for a lot of people but i would love to do another book probably yeah i think we need to get this man a second book come on We need to yeah. hear. We need to hear more. Mm. So we finish every interview uh-huh. with the same three questions. Well, I call them questions. They're more sentences and that you have to complete. Okay. Um. So <laughs> <laughs> the biggest misconception about me is. I think the biggest misconception about me is that I eat healthy and uh, like healthy food quotation marks every single day. And I, that's just not true. Like, I, I mean, I put most of my meals mm. on, on Instagram, but, you know, if there's a donut or there's some chocolates on the ward, I'm eating those. Yeah. And I'm really upfront about that What's as well. What's your favourite yeah. indulgence? It's going to sound healthy, but it's dark chocolate. 
I do love dark love chocolate. Love me some dark chocolate, yeah. If there is one thing I can use my platform to change, it would be... The education of medical students um, and the culture around food and medicine. Wow, okay. Well, I think you've answered that in the rest of the podcast as well. But I think it's, I think it's so exciting that you are on the kind of front line of that yeah. kind of battle and it's really exciting. And finally, my ultimate goal is to... Create community kitchens that are affiliated with every general practice surgery in the country to uh, really serve as uh, hubs where people can get evidence-based information about uh, healthy food and how to cook from scratch, but also how to live the healthiest, happiest lives that they can. You are fabulous. (laughs) And Rupi, I honestly wish you all the best with the book. Oh, cheers. It can really change some people's lives. It's very exciting. It's awesome. Absolute honour to have you today. Thank you so much for coming in. The book's out on the 28th of December. So make sure you get a copy. Give it to a friend who you think might really benefit from this. I think it's something that people are really going to need. So, yeah, thank you so much. A round of applause for Rupi. Thank you, you guys.